Good morning. It is a joy and an honor for me to share this space with you. I know that here at Bering, having a woman up here is no big deal. And I want you to know that for my family, this is a really special occasion. So thank you for graciously extending this space. I also want you to know that while this is my first Sunday to share with you, I have loved your congregation from afar for a very long time. The way that you love Cynthia is precious to me, and I want to say thank you. Thank you. Let's pray this morning. God of love, your love makes up the ground beneath our feet the air in our lungs, every thought in our mind. They are all evidence of your love. With every breath we take this morning, would you remind us that it is your love that sustains our life. We offer these hopes to you. Amen. I have always been a person who's been crazy about story. The television show Parenthood was made for me. Because you get, what, like six seasons of these people's lives, and there are tons of them, and I'm 100% invested in everything that happens to every single one of them all the way through the end. I was a mess at the end of that show. I just sobbed. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, I'm sorry. But someone dies at the end, and it's heartbreaking. And I am so invested in these characters that I am losing it as I'm watching this last episode. But it's not just watching good stories. I love to read good stories. I'm an avid reader. Um, if there was a t-shirt that said, keep calm and read, or come back later, I'm reading, or, you know, whatever, that's me. Uh, my family knows when there's a novel in front of me, they're less likely to get my attention. You're going to have to work harder if you really need something, and it better be important. If I'm at the point of no return in a story, don't bother me. Harry Potter is one of my favorites. I started reading it before I ever had kids of my own, and now I've gotten my husband and my brother and all of my children and all of his children and my parents and my sister. You see how this goes. I get everybody to read the story with me and then go see the movies with me when they come out because story, I love stories. When I was in probably elementary school, I'm going to go with, I would... Um, sort of hide a book under my pillow. And so after my mom had put me to sleep, thinking I'm going to sleep now, I would sneak out of bed with my book and I'd go to my nightlight and I'd sit like this. And I'd just read because I had to know what happened next to the Sweet Valley Twins. It was just really, really important. Thank you for knowing what that was. Thank you. And even before I could read stories, before I could write stories of my own, I was creating stories. And I would create stories with my Barbie dolls. In fact, I had a girlfriend spend the night when we were in the second grade, I believe, and we stayed up until five in the morning. My mom didn't know. I'm sorry, mom, if you're listening. We built an entire Barbie city out of shoeboxes. And our Barbies had this amazing adventure that lasted all night long. 
And most of my Barbie stories were not very inventive. They were things like perhaps the little sister beat the big brother in a wrestling match and went on to rule the world and he was her subject. I mean, something like that maybe. Something. They weren't exactly Oscar-worthy storytelling, but they were important as I was working out the pieces of what was happening in my life. At this stage in my life, story is my everyday. I am honored to sit with people and hear their stories. I hear how they encounter God. I hear how they're wrestling with their faith. I hear how they're wondering about all the pieces as they move together. It is my joy to hold those stories with them. So since I'm such a story addict, it was really helpful to me when Jeff let me know that you were in the middle of Genesis because Genesis is one giant story. From beginning to end, it's this saga, and it's full of all these amazing and a little weird things that happened to the people of God. And I thought, well, okay, I'm in for that. Now, if you are the Cliff Notes version, here's what you need to know. In Genesis 29, Jacob gets married. In Genesis 30, Jacob gets rich with both descendants and kids. Okay, that was good. Thanks. See you later. I'm kidding. No, no. We're going to go a little further. But that's the overriding view, right? We're in the middle of this Genesis saga. And we've seen Jacob on the run from his brother. He's stolen the blessing. And so he's hiding. And on the way of his hiding, he meets God in a dream at Bethel. And that is what has set up for us where we find the story today. Jacob is searching for his uncle Laban, as his father instructed him to do. Go to your mother's people. You'll be safe there. So that's what he's done. And he arrives in the land, and he's sitting, and he's watching the shepherds come and go. And then Jacob experiences love at first sight. If we were watching a movie, this is the moment where the movie goes to slow-mo, right? Rachel's hair is blowing in the breeze, right? That's where we are in the story. And then Jacob, his eyes get twice as big as their normal size. And it's like he ate his spinach and suddenly he's superhuman strength. This is the stuff movies are made of, right? It's pretty good so far. It's pretty good. But in this lovesick state, Jacob makes some not-so-wise decisions. One, he trusts his uncle, which we, we know does not turn out so great for him, right? Because he works for seven years, he marries, except he's given the wrong wife on purpose. And suddenly he's married to Leah, Rachel's older sister. And so then a week later, he's also given Rachel the wife of his heart. Now, you don't have to be a genius to know this is a setup for a problem. It's, got, it's not going to go well. Now that he's a married man, our Jacob becomes a father 12 times over. His 13th child will be born in a later chapter. But in just these two chapters, 12 babies are born. That is a lot of babies. I've had three, and I don't know how Jacob kept up with 12 running around, right? And they were all so close in age. I don't know what you do with that. 
But like so much of the Genesis story, there's sibling rivalry that's at the heart of the action. Leah and Rachel are battling it out, and their arena is Jacob's love. And the only way they know to score points is to have more kids. This is a terrible game for all kinds of reasons. But one of the reasons is that they give their slaves to Jacob as his wives. They force their slaves to sell themselves so that they can win. It's heartbreaking. If this was a TV show, this would be the moment where the action begins to like speed up, right? It's almost in fast forward. And every other picture that we see is of a newborn baby. And at the end, there's 12 babies all there together. And you think, I don't even know who's who in that picture. I kind of think Jacob might have felt the same way from time to time. So with 12 miles to feed, Jacob begins to build his wealth. But he can't just build his wealth. It's got to be in a competition because that's how we know our Jacob to be. So he and Laban are at it again. And this time Jacob is determined to win. And win he does. Both of these chapters feature Jacob. He's our main character, right? He's first being tricked and then he becomes the trickster again. And we think, okay, this is, this is who we've got. We've got Jacob, the trickster. And then the supporting cast, they're important, we can't forget them. We have Laban, the trickier-than-Jacob uncle, who shouldn't be trusted very far. We have Leah, the unloved one. She's using her children to win Jacob's love. We have Rachel, the entitled one, who gets so desperate, it's palpable. We don't just have them. So we have our main character, we have our supporting cast, and now we have our extras. And our extras really are just treated as pawns in order for these four larger characters to win. We have Zilpah and Bilhah. It's important to me that their names are known because they were treated as if they didn't matter. We have 12 children who are born not of love but of rivalry. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, we know how well that turns out for them. There are also all of Jacob's livestock. They are simply pawns in a game. They are not valued. They are simply pawns. And then there's this very small mention of the fact that apparently Leah and Rachel had brothers. Who knew? And these brothers, man, they're a little bit worried that their dad and their brother-in-law's war is going to cost them their own livelihood. And that comes into play as the chapters continue to unfold. Can we be really honest? I don't really like this story. In fact, I don't like it at all. These four characters of Jacob and Laban and Leah and Rachel, they're, well, they're power-hungry. They're manipulative. They're despicable. I don't like them. They take advantage of and abuse other humans. They take advantage of and abuse animals in order to win. I don't feel much pride 
I'm calling these people my spiritual relatives. These are the people that at Thanksgiving we would want to put in the other room so we didn't have to actually let them meet the normal people that come. They're not heroes. But so often we read these stories and we assume Jacob must be the hero. But when we read this story really literally and we hold Jacob up as our main character, well, that's the sort of thing that creates the handmaid's tale if you have not read the book or watched the series please don't start it at night you will have nightmares it's terrible it's a terrible story that literally comes from these passages in scripture it's awful I don't really recommend it I just wanted you to know that's where it comes from it's up to you if you want to read that so there's got to be another way Another way to see and understand this story. I mean, really, as a parent, when I'm going to read a story to my kids when they were little, they're not little now, they're big. You can see them, they're big. But when I would read them a story at night, this is not the Bible story I would read them. So why? Why does God give us this story? I suppose it's a it's a job hazard, that as I hear stories, I can't help but wonder, how do these people perceive God? It's part of what I do all day long, and so I find myself wondering that. God's role in this story seems to be behind the scenes. I mean, I had to wonder, what do we even know about how these four characters, our big characters in the story, how do we know about how they relate to God? It doesn't really say a whole lot, right? Well, good news. Being a person who's loved stories for so long, I'm excellent at making things up. So, here's some possibilities. I would imagine that Laban would say something about God like maybe this. God plays favorites. And God chose my sister's family over my family. So if I'm going to get what I need in this life, I'm going to have to lie, cheat, steal, and deceive to get my needs met. Because truthfully, God is inactive. God has nothing to do with this story right now. I can imagine that Leah might think that God is cruel. God trapped me in a body that no one values. And after a lifetime of being compared to my sister, I had a chance to marry and get away from her. And instead, I'm trapped in a marriage with her for all of eternity. I'm never going to get away from her. I'm never going to get away from being the one who loses. God doesn't care about me. God is distant. God has nothing to do with this story. I imagine Rachel might say something like, I don't know this God. This is Jacob's God. In our home, there were gods everywhere. You picked your favorite. So I don't know about this Yahweh. I don't know who that is, but I'll tell you this. If Yahweh was real and Yahweh had actual power, then I would have a baby because then Jacob's love for me would be secure. But since that's not happening, God is obviously just cruel. So we come to our hero. It's our chance, right, to redeem the story. Come on, Jacob, you can do it for us. Except 
if you look at the text, Jacob doesn't actually know God yet. I would imagine Jacob might say something like, everyone thinks I should know God right now, but truthfully, God is the God of my father and my grandfather. God is the God of this dream. So God is in a place, I named it, after God, but God's not here. God's not a part of what's happening right now. God is absent. These are kind of uncomfortable to say and to hear about God. But the truth is, I hear them almost every day. They're very familiar ways of relating to who God is. Because when we receive the diagnosis or lose the job or have trouble in our relationships, good theology, good thinking about God is the first thing to go. It's the first casualty. And we're in good company. Don't beat yourself up about that. We have an entire text full of people who forget God's nature when things get hard. So what are we to do with that? What are we to do? If we look back in our text, if you take the whole story, not just Genesis 29 through 30, but Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation, the whole story, it seems really risky to me, really risky, that God would have chosen to tell us about God's nature, God's character with a story. Because here's the truth. If you read Sweet Valley Twins, you probably saw something different than I did. And if you read Harry Potter, you might not be so sure this is a good idea. Because when people come to story, they all take something different away. We all come with our lenses already in place, right? We saw it with Laban and with Leah and with Rachel and with Jacob. Every single one of them came with their own stuff to the story. And we do too. We come with our own stuff. And sometimes we don't even know what the stuff is. So if we don't know what it is that's allowing us to see a story in a particular way, then we don't have any space for someone that sees it entirely differently. Because come on, can't they see it's right there? It's plain as day. Except it's not. Story is so much more nuanced than that. In our tradition of Churches of Christ, we're not real good with nuance. Can we just all admit that together? I grew up in the Churches of Christ. I love and am grateful. But let's be honest, nuance is not our thing. We really like black and white. We like straight lines. We want to be able to come to Scripture and say, Oh, that, it's right there. See, I can read those words. And we forget that we come with our lenses on. And that the way I read the story might be a little different than the way you read the story, and neither one is wrong. It's story. It's nuanced. It feels like a really bold move on God's part to give us a story instead of a list of rules. It says God has a lot of faith in you and me. 
So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to take story and know what to do next? I mean, really, if we take the story that is in Genesis 29 and 30 at face value, we're going to turn out like the Handmaid's Tale. And I don't like that story. I don't want to end up there. So what are we to do with this text? I believe that Scripture was given to us in order for us to know the story of God as God has chosen to move in the world. Scripture is to introduce us to the true nature of this God. So, Scripture becomes a litmus test, right? It's one of the ways we discern our way forward. If we say it's this way in Scripture, this who God is, well, then we know how we're supposed to act. But it's not the only way. If you can imagine a stool, if it just has one leg, you're going to be real careful before you sit on it, right? (laughs) Nod your head. It would hurt. So what are the other legs on our stool? Well, I do think Scripture is an important one, but I also think our own personal experience of God, our own personal way of being with God and knowing God is one of the legs of the stool. And I believe the wisdom of the community, the people we live in and among telling our God stories is another way that we discern our way forward. Now our stool has three legs. That's going to feel a little better to sit on. And in the same way, Scripture and our own experience of God and the wisdom of the community, they hold up the life of the believer. So if we take that lens and we go back again to Genesis 29 and 30, what do we know about God? What does the story tell us about God's nature? Well, God only takes direct action three times in these two chapters. In Genesis 29, 31, God saw. In Genesis 30, 17, God listened. In Genesis 30, 22, God remembered. These are the three actions that we know God took in the story. God saw, God listened, and God remembered. So when we know that about the story, what do we know about God? Here's my best guess. We know that God is active. We know that God is concerned with individual people. We know that God is good, and we know that God is love. If this is what the text invites us to know about the nature and character of God, then we wonder, how have I known that? That's our second leg, right? How have I known God to be active in the world? How have I known God to be concerned in the lives of an individual? How have I known God to be good? How have I known God to be love? And then we bring those to the community. How has this family of God known that God is active in the world? 
How have you known that God is concerned in the lives of individuals? How have you as a community known that God is good? And how have you known that God is love? This is what discerning our way forward looks like. This is what the people of God do when we're faced with now what? I wonder, how might the story have ended differently if Jacob had known these now? He discovers them later. It's later in Jacob's story that he wrestles with God, and he's still not perfect after that. But he's kind of, he has a personal experience with God that then he can measure against the experience of his father and grandfather. I wonder, how could the story have ended differently? I don't know. But here's what I do know. And I think it's important. As a spiritual director, I want you to know I hear all the time language from all of us that we assume some things about God. We assume that God's playing Barbies with us, that there's a pre-written script that God is acting out, and all we can do is move along like a puppet with strings. That's not the God that's in Genesis 29. If that was true, can you imagine all the ways God would have jumped in and fixed this story? A whole lot of ways. One, at least one, is that surely God would have said, Jacob, stop drinking so much wine at your wedding so you recognize when the wrong bride shows up. I mean, that's one. That's just one. There are so many ways that God would have stepped into the story if God was just playing Barbies with us. You have free will. You have the ability to choose. What will you do? How will you move forward? And the life of the believer is to say, I'm going to move forward in accordance with who I know God to be. Who do I know God to be? I think that this story is part of this huge arc of God's action in the world that is inviting us into relationship, period. That's the Cliff Notes version. (laughs) The crazy part is just like God has left us to interpret the story, God has left us to decide how we will respond to the story. That's a lot of risk. Sounds kind of crazy to me. If you think about it as a parent, we don't leave our children that much choice, right? I mean, a little, but the choice is really do you want this or that, not what do you want. And yet that's what God has given us. God has given us the what do you want. Do you want to be in relationship with me? Not just do you want to know all the right things to say, but do you want relationship? Because relationship is risky. It's risky for God, and it's risky for us. So here are some questions I wonder about how we can take them with us 
You use them as you will, as I say. In direction, it's an invitation. See what happens. Will you choose to join where God is already at work in the world? Will you choose to look for the other who is excluded in order to invite them in? Will you choose to seek the greater good beyond your own personal wants? And here's the real one that covers all the others. It's this. Will you choose to risk a deeper, more vulnerable relationship with God? So many of us, in all honesty, would prefer to be Barbies. Because it takes all the risk out of it. Just point me where to go, God. Just tell me what to do. Just make me go there. And then I don't have any responsibility for how it turns out. I can just get mad at you. But relationship, maturing, growing, loving relationship requires agency on our parts. It requires us to choose the risk So what about you? Will you choose to engage with God's crazy, stupid love? Will you choose life? And God said, it is good. Please stand as we sing together.